on Textbooked. Gorbachev from 1987-88 took a highly unusual step. He came to believe that the party was actually not an instrument of power, but an obstacle to change, to ossify, to bureaucratize. So he started economic reforms that turned out to be quite misguided and counterproductive. And at the same time, he began to destroy the instruments, the only instruments that could have allowed him to recalibrate his reforms. You're listening to Untextbooked. This is the podcast that gives students and young people the power to follow our curiosity. There's so many stories throughout the world. Reading even one topic or one story can provide me a deeper dive into who I truly am and where I come from. We can better understand the trajectory we're moving on as both a nation and a society. We talk to leading journalists, historians, writers, changemakers, you name it. It's pressing, it's concerning, it was shocking. And through that, we take the history out of the textbook. I'm Gabe Hostin. And I'm Ismail Asafi. And you're listening to Untextbooked. By the end of World War II, the USSR was a notable ally of the United States and a global superpower controlling half of Europe. By the end of 1991, however, this powerful nation found itself in pieces. So what changed? There were many factors at play, including questionable reforms by then-President Mikhail Gorbachev, resulting in unmet needs of the nation's citizens. Even more, bitter internal dissension led many historians to argue that the USSR's collapse wasn't a question of if, but when. As the old adage says, united we stand, divided we fall. On this episode of Untextbooked, Ismail interviews Vlad Zubak, author of Collapse, the fall of the Soviet Union. To many, the collapse of the Soviet Union was inevitable, but Professor Vlad Zubak believes that wasn't exactly the case. Today, we'll revisit those final years of the USSR, exploring whether it could have been saved, and what precedents that set for modern-day geopolitical climates. Thank you so much, Professor Zubak, for coming. Welcome to Untextbooked. It's a true pleasure having you. I absolutely enjoyed your book. It's good to be on this show. The foundation of your book, Collapse, it is about what happened in the late USSR and what led to its collapse. You try to question the narrative, usually put forward by historians. Could you speak a bit about what is this narrative that you're trying to defy? There are several narratives, and they're united by this common assumption is inevitability. Before the Soviet Union collapsed, there was quite another assumption that it was unthinkable to imagine such a state that had so much resilience, so much hierarchy, so much concentration of power in in the hands of the few in the state, the army, the KGB, and so on, to collapse. It happened remarkably uh, rapidly. It took essentially one year. In the fall of 1990, very few people still could imagine that the Soviet Union would cease to exist. And a year later, everyone could see that the Soviet Union was going up in smoke in a, in a pretty, almost like a magical way. You know? And it was essentially the same people who previously wrote 
and commented and did the punditry thing that this it was unthinkable that such a state would go down peacefully. They began to say, but of course it was inevitable. But they differed over what caused this inevitability. For some, it was the Soviet economic model that was unproductive and the Soviet Union was an economic crisis because, of course, it was not capitalism. It was the state-run economy, and such an economy had to collapse. Other people, mostly linked to ethnic minorities, such as, you know, Ukrainians, the Volts, and so on and so forth, they privileged another explanation. The Soviet Union was a multi-ethnic empire, and therefore, of course, like all empires collapsed in the past, the Soviet Union was bound to collapse, and here we are. So nothing to get surprised over. And there were, I would call, Reagan fans that were in the league of their own, I should say, who always pointed to Ronald Reagan, although Reagan was not the president of the United States at that moment when the Soviet Union collapsed. But they praised him so much that they thought, you know, that it was Reagan that created the situation when the Soviet leaders uh, could not do anything but to surrender and then collapse ignominiously. And that was, you know, the situation that Reagan created for them in Afghanistan by arming Mujahideens. You know, it was so-called SDI or Star Wars that clearly showed that America will outperform the Soviet Union technologically and scientifically in arms race and so on and so forth. The list goes on. There was also a school of thought inside Russia itself. There were younger reformers who believed that uh, the entire system was ineffective, disgusting, and so on and so forth. So they agreed with their Western colleagues uh, that this system had to go. And they had a their special take on why the Soviet Union collapsed. They dug out a few a few salient features of how the Soviet economy went down. For instance, one was the oil prices that plummeted uh, rapidly and that essentially disrupted the Soviet budget so dramatically that the Soviet Union became bankrupted by that thing and so on and so forth. So all these schools I had to tackle because all those schools essentially dominated and may, one may say, dominate today textbook narratives of the Soviet collapse. What I found behind those explanations is unwillingness to deal with the subject. Because when you say something was inevitable because of factor A, factor B, factor Z, then it's really not necessary to look hard into this, into the process itself, into what actors did into all these contingencies that at some point, you know, change the course of history. In other words, it's not necessary to look into history as such. It's just enough to say, but of course it was inevitable. And whoever it could have been, Gorbachev or, I don't know, Simpson, it, you know, the Soviet Union would have collapsed. It could have been a genius running the Soviet Union, and then the Soviet Union would have collapsed anyway. So that found it completely unconvincing completely objectionable. And it was an opportunity for me as a historian to go into details, materials, abundance of sources. And I loved it. I loved it. I spent quite a few years going through all these materials and I found I basically built quite a different narrative. And could you speak to what narrative or at least what paradigm you came up with in Collapse? Well, the Soviet Union was not in an economic crisis when Gorbachev came to power. The Soviet Union, even if you consider it as a multi-ethnic empire, was surprisingly stable. And there were minorities, such as the Bolts, and I would start with the Bolts, who wanted out 
always wanted out of the Soviet Union. But the rest of nations constituting so-called Soviet people, they didn't imagine their existence outside the common union. So also I found that the threat from the United States and arms race, Afghanistan, oil prices, whatnot, did not bankrupt the Soviet Union. There were other factors that you know, led to fundamental disbalancing of Soviet finances and disorganization of Soviet economy. Those were reforms that Gorbachev undertook in expecting that those reforms would help socialist state to regain strength. And instead, the reforms turned out to be so counterproductive, so misguided, that they became the equivalent of an iceberg that hit the Soviet ship, Soviet Titanic, so harsh that the Titanic lost its buoyancy and then essentially capsized. Right. And could you speak about the nature, or at least what motivated Gorbachev to execute these reforms at that specific time in the history of the Soviet Union? Everyone knew that some kind of reforms were necessary. They were necessary already after Stalin's death. The problem was how to reform the Stalinist model of socialism, where everything was decided by one man in the Kremlin with a few sidekicks, so-called Politburo, and that, you know, kind of bureaucratic chains of command all the way down. So everyone understood that in modern world, there should be something more flexible, more complex. And discussions erupted already at the end of the 50s and continued to the 1960s. But then at the end of the 60s, the talks of those reforms uh, were stopped from above. And the, Soviet, the new Soviet leader, his name was Leonid Brezhnev, decided that it's much better to rest on the laurels, you know, not change anything. And stability is the must, but stability without change. You know, we know that other people, for instance, Deng Xiaoping in China, when he came to power in 1978, 79, his slogan was different. You must cross the river, but you should feel for the stones or touch the stones. So you have to change. You have to cross the river, but at the same time, you should keep traction and maintain stability. So Brezhnev's choice was different. Stability, no change. And of course, his rule turned out to be the period when people relaxed, people, you know, after all those traumatic events of the previous decades, uh, Lenin, Stalin, and so on and so forth, found that period strangely quiet, but strangely soothing. But then problems kept cropping up. And complete unwillingness of the political leadership to listen to complaints, to take systematic look at the problem. It all kind of accumulated and it fell to Gorbachev to resolve all those issues. So there was no doubt that from moment one, Gorbachev enjoyed immense popularity in all the elites, including the KGB, including the military and the people, because they saw him as a young man at the time. And they wanted him to introduce change. Everyone wanted some kind of change, but change that would keep stability, retain all the benefits of the socialism, that is some, you know, guaranteed employment, 
some nice things for the family, like, you know, kindergartens, uh, you know, free elementary and middle education, and even higher education, and so on and so forth. And at the same time, introduce the element of dynamism into the existing economy. And Gorbachev groped for the ways to approach this issue. He had a group of economists who helped him. He had his primary minister, who was so-called red director, was involved in the construction of aircraft for the military. And they those were all well-meaning people. One can call them, you know, progressive or progressivists. And, you know, some people call them liberal-minded. I don't find the word liberal applying to the Soviets, but still. But they really did not have any clue on how to proceed. And one important thing I found, they even had poor memory of the previous attempts. Of course, I remember the 60s. But the 60s, there were only a few years of when the reforms were kicked into action and they were quickly cut short. But there, there was a very rich period of economic discussions about what to do with socialism and market during the 1920s before Stalin. So the tragedy was that you know all those people who had participated in those debates were either murdered by Stalin or they just passed away. So there's, there was no collective memory at all in this group of economists and technocrats who came to power in the, in the middle of the 80s. So Gorbachev should not be singled out as the leader who had no clue what to do. The whole cohort had to start from scratch. So they experimented, and the experiments turned out to be quite horrible and unsuccessful. Unlike Dan Xiaoping, who kept the party and the army in his hands, and he used those instruments of power so that he could control bureaucracy, control various regions of China, and sort of probe and retract, probe and retract, change and calibrate. Gorbachev, from 1987-88, took a highly unusual step. He came to believe that the party was actually not an instrument of power, but an obstacle to change, to ossify, to bureaucratize. So he started economic reforms that turned out to be quite misguided and counterproductive. And at the same time, he began to destroy the instruments, the only instruments that could have allowed him to recalibrate his reforms. And so a year later, he ended up with reforms that were going terribly wrong, and the new structure of power that he himself authorized, that was unruly, completely unruly, run by you know, various lobbies, groups of people who you know, were demagogues, and so on and so forth. And of course, his nemesis, Boris Yeltsin, he was not the only one who basically said, Gorbachev should go. His reforms are failing. Now we should scrap the whole thing. The whole thing, not only reforms, but the old Soviet state as well. And we should recreate Russia. And, you know, such radicalism, of course, appealed to many Russians, including workers, including people who understood very little about political economy or international relations. But they knew one thing. They lived better under Brezhnev before Gorbachev came to power than they lived under Gorbachev. So they love grew worse, not better. So they turned against Gorbachev and they supported a demagogue that promised to them that, you know, the overhaul of the entire system would grant them an immediate improvement of their lives. Wow, this story sounds rather familiar. 
Yeah, it's also a critical reminder of how important reviewing our history is to sustaining our future. I think this was fascinating in terms of the exploration of the reforms undertaken by Gorbachev. And I think something in what you just said and which you talked about in the book concerning Gorbachev being a very genuine person actually struck me as very, very interesting. Because when we listen to Gorbachev or think of Gorbachev, we think of him as someone who internalized these ideas, these Western ideas. And you go in chapter two and talk about Gorbachev as being an admirer of Lenin, or what you call a neo-Leninist. Could you talk bit about that, or at least at the beginning, explain what Leninism is for our audience, and then go on to speak about Gorbachev's ideological position? Well, you know, I was a fan of Gorbachev from day one, and uh, remained his fan approximately until the early months of 1990, when, lo and behold, I was much younger at that time, I switched my hopes to Yeltsin. Yes, I was one of those who followed the demagogue. <laughs> I thought, you know, this is a guy who will give us a better future because he's more radical, he's more resolute, Gorbachev is indecisive, Gorbachev is vacillating. So I had to rediscover Gorbachev for myself as, as a historian when I, of course, began to write my book. So I read, you know, reams of papers, you know, thousands of pages of what Gorbachev said, what Gorbachev wanted. And my Gorbachev is a remarkably nice guy. So when people for decades wrote about Gorbachev as a hope for the liberal West, as a great man, the man who deserved the Nobel Peace Prize, he received it in October 1990. You know, it's all true. He was a very sincere man. He was a good family man. He loved his wife. He never cheated on her. You know, he was for a politician who grew up in, the, in that kind of system. He was almost honest, almost, because politicians are never fully honest, as we know. It's impossible. But he was a remarkable man of integrity. But this is exactly what tripped him, if you like, his uh, goodness. He was in love with theory. He was. He believed in science. He and his wife read sociological and philosophical and historical tracts a lot. He was the first Soviet leader since Stalin, who actually spent hours and hours reading serious stuff. You know, Stalin was a bloody dictator. Gorbachev was a different person. He wanted to basically to undo the evil that Stalin did to the Soviet Union, to become sort of an anti-Stalin. And so what did it mean to be become an anti-Stalin, to become Roosevelt, Kennedy, I don't know, Churchill? No. For him, it was the Soviet tradition that indicated that Lenin was the original, the original founder of the Soviet state, and he meant, you know, great things. But then Stalin came and defiled, mucked up all those great things. So it was a typical belief for men and women of the 1960s, 50s and 60s, when Gorbachev was growing up. And he remained faithful to that sort of maybe naive historical philosophy of his times. So I discovered to my amazement that even as late as 89, when it became clear that the Soviet Union faced an entirely different situation, as Lenin had nothing to do with this history of 1989, communism was corrupt, the bureaucracy, I think part of the Soviet bureaucracy secretly dreamed of becoming rich men, oligarchs, or whatnot. But Gorbachev remained a naive Leninist in his, in his heart. He kept rereading Lenin almost like, you know, an Old Testament or New Testament, depending on, you know, looking for what, what did he mean between these two lines? I mean, that's something that previous rulers of the Soviet Union 
probably would have dismissed totally. It was lunacy, actually, delusion on his part to try to find clues to the situation of the uh, late 90s, late 80s, in the tracts of uh, a Russian revolutionary who had composed those tracts, you know, 70, 80 years earlier. It's strange. But this is what Gorbachev was about. Right. And I personally had a question which, you know, stayed in my mind. How can a neo-Leninist liberalize in a way Russia or at least the USSR? When you look at Russian history from 1917 on today, you find bloody dictatorship, pretty ruthless dictatorship coming to power. And the Bolsheviks viewed themselves as that, you know, cohort of men of steel. Stalin called himself a man of steel, but the others viewed themselves as well. Uh, some historians call them, you know, a millenarian sect that imposed their vision on the rest of the society. But this is how we view it. With the Gorbachev generation, who grew up under late Stalin and later, they viewed it differently. They viewed that period as a period of sincere revolutionary fervor, passion, hope, and they compared and contrasted the first 10 years of the Bolsheviks in power with what happened later when Stalin basically murdered most of those Bolsheviks and came to conclusion that, indeed, there was a great, much greater potential in that early Bolshevism. There was a lot of idealization of the 1920s and the early rule of the Bolsheviks because Economy was quite, how to put it, hybrid and still included many market elements in comparison to ruthless planning and state ownership of later period. There was terror, but uh, not as close to what Stalin would later do with his great terror and so on and so forth. And most importantly, what impressed Gorbachev, don't forget that Gorbachev was a member of the Communist Party. And most of the men and women who helped him were also the party members. So what impressed them was that actually in the 20s, Bolsheviks were an ecosystem that kept arguing among themselves. They were never sure of anything. They could argue with the leader, with Lenin. They could argue with Stalin before Stalin started killing, you know, his rivals. So that was this so-called intra-party democracy or democracy inside the party that fascinated Gorbachev. He found there so much freedom of expression, so much intellectual energy, uh, of course, within the socialist, communist strand, but still, that he wanted to bring it back. So his liberalization of Soviet political life was based on this idea. Another idea that impressed him a lot was so-called power to the Soviets slogan. The Soviets, uh, which is, was part of the Soviet Union, of course, name of the country, the Soviets were councils of workers, peasants that you know emerged spontaneously from the grassroots, from below. So it was grassroots democracy. The Bolshevik party took took over those Soviets, began to impose its will on those Soviets, and, you know, basically ended up killing them as institution of people's democracy. But for Gorbachev, he thought that you can reignite this energy of reform and change if you appeal to people directly and allow those Soviets that were just ossified structures uh, since Stalin times to be filled with new blood. So what he did in early 1989, he had the first semi-free elections. 
of you know the Congress of Soviets were 2,225 people's deputies were elected, and some of them contested elections uh, with remarkable freedom and absence of any pressure, and any any KGB pressure at least. And uh, that was the beginning of a huge change because when people watched the first Congress of People's Deputies on television, it was televised. And previous Congresses were also televised, but there was, you know, like, I don't know, very boring show of an aging leader clapping himself and the rest of the delegates clapped him. And then they sang the international and that was over. Everything was predetermined. Everything was agreed from advance. So all of a sudden, this uh, first Congress starts with some, you know, wild men running to the podium and saying, let's have a, you know, five minutes of silence over the dead people in Belize. This was completely out of script. And, and everyone has kind of said, wow, you know, we have this new freedom that you can do what is not in the script. And this is what people call, in retrospect, Gorbachevian liberalization. It was more like pushing the boundaries of what was permitted. And people who lived for decades in a society where everything was regimented, everything was supposed to be agreed with the party, with the state, with your local bureaucrats, local officials, and so on and so forth, all of a sudden uh, realized what is not strictly forbidden is allowed. Suddenly, people began to react normally. They woke up. And 1989 was this period of wake up, tremendous period for many people. Right. And what sounds pretty interesting in what you just said, I mean, I'm wondering here if this newfound freedom or at least this new way of thinking, this call to in like Lenin and this early Soviet history, this passion, was that the foundation of the experiments that were conducted by Gorbachev and other people in the Communist Party at the time? And was that what led to, in a way, the fall of the USSR? In part, in part, to a great extent, it it was the creation of political institutions in Moscow and in each republic that constituted the Soviet Union, the 15 republics, with their boundaries. The boundaries were completely artificial. They were only on the map. They didn't exist in reality. None of those republics had any sovereignty or autonomy. They had no customs, no, no, but they had sort of fake institutions. Stalin was such a how to say, legalist. He, even at the peak of his dictatorial power, he created semblance of the existence of autonomous units in the Soviet Union. Gorbachev was also legalist, but of a different kind, a well-meaning kind, I should say. He decided to fill those uh, artificial republics with real meaning, give them real autonomy. At first he was cautious, but then the Baltic republics who had been annexed to the Soviet Union in 1940 by Stalin, they realized it's a golden opportunity to quit the Soviet Union. And then they began to catch up with this game and actually tell Gorbachev, oh, we're ready for more autonomy. Give us more, give us more. (laughs) And other people warn Gorbachev, well, the Bolts are playing tricks with you. They really want to secede. They don't want to stay. But Gorbachev was, I guess, caught up in his own game and had no other option but continue this game. Because, you know, again, he was absolutely genuine. He believed that more democracy meant more socialism. 
And the more autonomy he gave to those republics, the more they would be interested in perhaps interacting with uh, the common economy, work better, and then so on and so forth. But it's historically, it's a perennial problem of freedom and stability, freedom and state. And it, of course, looks natural in established democracies that uh, for decades exist in, in this imperfect harmony, I should say, between uh, freedom and rights and state obligations and state structures and state coercion. But for the country like the Soviet Union that were, you know, democracy was non-existent, and for the people like Russians who had never had a chance to experience liberal democracy, that was a big temptation, I should say, to, to take this big leap towards freedom when no one really knew how to practice it, when nobody could figure out how to combine these new political freedoms with efficiently functioning economy. So because economic reforms and that leap to the market coincided with the leap to political freedoms and liberalization, I think that helped to overload the system. In other words, not, not, not even overload, the system began to creak up on seams and fall apart. Now, going back to another narrative that you tried to defy in your book, the idea that Reagan created the entire situation and the role of the United States in the fall, the collapse of the USSR. I'm wondering, what role did the U.S. play in the collapse? Well, I disagree with those who say that Western advisors helped to destroy the Soviet Union. It's another conspiratorial theory that people in Putin's entourage and on their right, uh, nationalist right in Russia, they prefer. I would dispute it because physically there were very few American and Western advisors present. They began to appear seriously only since the end of the 90s and particularly in the spring of 1991 when the republics already gained so much autonomy from the center, from the union itself, from the union government, that they began to invite American advisors and other advisors from the West in expectation that they would teach them what to do, how to reform economy, how to reform constitution, and so on and so forth. The Bolts were in the forefront of that, and they used, of course, people from the Baltic diaspora in Canada, in the United States. Ukrainians did it slightly later. But interesting, I found that quite a few American advisors, uh, in, some of them former dissidents from the Soviet Union, they came back eager to help. But their role was really marginal. So the collapse of the Soviet Union was by far domestic affair. But if you take another angle of the situation, if you measure Western soft power on the Soviet society, doesn't matter who, the Balts, the Ukrainians, the Russians, I don't know, Georgians, you find that Western soft power was enormous. In other words, everyone could see all of a sudden, in 1989-90, that the Soviet Union was at the end of history, we were on the wrong side of history, and all of a sudden people looked at the West and said, oh, they're on the right side, they know how to rectify everything, because look, everything works there. So decades of Soviet propaganda that the West is devious, you know, capitalists only want to destroy us, it went up in smoke. All of a sudden there was pro-Western euphoria in the country. and. People in all parts of the society, including Soviet bureaucrats, 
including even, you know, captains of Soviet military industrial complex. They turned to Western capitalists, Western investment bankers, Western advisors with just open arms. Come, come and help us to rule. It's it's such an old Russian story. You know, the origins of the ancient Russian state, as the Chronicles tells us, began with the Russians inviting the Normans, the Varangians from the Scandinavia with this sort of appeal, come and rule us, come and tell us what to do. So that was this, you know, strange moment in 1991 when the West had unlimited soft power capital in Russia. The entire foundation of your book is the fact that the fall of the USSR was not inevitable. So I'm wondering, with the soft power of the West in mind, could the USSR have been saved? And what reforms could have been changed for the USSR to continue to exist today? Well, the irony of this history, Ismail, is that the more Soviet elites believed in Western soft power and uh, Western capacity to fix anything and everything, the less they were interested in looking at their own institutions, the existing institutions. And they sort of went for an import importation of the knowledge from the West, not instead of reassessing what they already had, their homegrown experience. And that's a classic situation for many countries of Latin America, you know, Asia, Africa, in post-colonial era. You know, that blind belief in Western recipes then lead to huge disappointments. And people, you know, go to their home recipes, such as, you know, military dictatorships, I don't know what. And this is what happened inside the Soviet Union. It was easier to do it for the Balts because they had their diasporas in North America, as I mentioned. They were small. They were a coherent population that really felt always that uh, they had been absorbed by Stalin illegally. So they had a nationalist dream to return to Europe. But for Russia to have this unrealistic faith in the West and everything Western played, I think, a sad trick on them. Nobody to blame but themselves, actually. I wouldn't blame Western advisors. They came to the country that they understood very little. They all of a sudden saw the population that was ready to embrace them, to, you know, carry them on their arms. And, you know, they took it for granted. They, you know, it was natural for them that, you know, the locals now finally saw the light and want to join the civilized world. But of course, we know the situation was is never like this. And the Russians later on, uh, I guess it was in the 90s when the uh, economy tanked and, you know, finances were in disarray and life became horrible. As you can see, by the way, in recent documentary production now on BBC, done by Adam Curtis, you know, I recommend everyone to watch it. So the situation was horrible and all of a sudden people began to look for scapegoats. Of course, it's not us who were wrong. Somebody else was wrong. So those Americans tricked us. Those British people tricked us. So, you know, that was a predictable uh, uh, U-turn of public opinion against the West that, uh, of course, President uh, Yeltsin in the 90s viewed with horror and his successor, President Putin, actually settled and became the hero of that new anti-Western mood. Right. And I'm guessing the contemporary situation in Ukraine has a lot to do with this anti-Western vision of contemporary Russia. Could we trace the situation that we're seeing today 
to the fall of the Soviet Union and to this attitude of blaming the West for internal struggle? Well, I should say the situation in Russia greatly improved under the early rule of Vladimir Putin, when Putin himself still was thinking what to do next. I don't think we should treat Putin as an unchanging ex-KGB leader that remained the same all the time. I talked to many people who saw Putin, let's say, even before 2014 and earlier, and they all told me that was a different Putin. So the earlier Putin believed that communism was indeed a dead end. The Soviet Union was destined to collapse for reasons, for internal reasons, not because the West somehow tricked it into collapsing. So that was the early system of beliefs of Vladimir Putin. And he was determined actually to take Russia to the club of great powers, developed countries, and he wanted to rub shoulders with other great leaders. It was only gradually, and it's a story that is told by his biographers, only gradually that he uh, realized that he would not be able to find a, a, a niche for himself. I don't know about Russia for himself in that club, and uh, particularly was disappointed with President Bush Jr. I think it was his great disappointment because they initially they they were almost friends, and later on uh, Putin gave the United States some great favors. For instance, when America sent troops to Afghanistan, the Russian state helped Americans a lot. And then in return, what Putin received from America was this uh, open door to NATO expansion, including Ukraine, including Georgia. So Putin believed that America stabbed him in, if not in the back, but maybe in the soft underbelly by not taking seriously the interests of Russia. Russia is a great power and Putin is a restorer of this great power. So that was a whole identity that Putin built for himself in the zeros. And then all of a sudden he came to conclude that America was playing against him. America was taking all post-Soviet space in Europe into NATO, except Russia. So Russia is always excluded. Yeah. And this became his story. And that story, I would say, obsessively influenced him. He began to read other books, other sources. He began to read conservative Russian thinkers and philosophers and discovered that Okay, according to them, the West was always an enemy of Russia. Russia was always uh, surrounded by, you know, those cunning Western elites that wanted to destroy it. So it's uh, Putin, too, that began to emerge quite gradually. Of course, it's the same person. And there was something in Putin early on that probably predisposed him to this transformation. But, you know, people change. I would mention also the transformation of Mikhail Gorbachev. Mikhail Gorbachev, who gave the West so much by, you know, we all know the story, ending the Cold War, allowing Germany to unify, many great things, signing all kinds of disarmament treaties in 1991. The same Gorbachev later supported the uh, Putin's annexation of Crimea. And the same Gorbachev grumbled that the West indeed misused Russia's trust and his own trust. It was him who was saying it. So Gorbachev also didn't remain the same person as in 1991. He made his own conclusions and he evolved towards the end of his life. Now, as we're wrapping up, I just wanted to ask, is there anything you'd like to add? 
to add to what? To the history of the Soviet collapse? You know, we're adding to this history as we speak because history continues. History, you know, there's no end of history, Ismail. It, it, it continues. So the war in Ukraine, in a sense, already enforces, imposes on us some reappraisal and some rewriting of previous history. Because I must admit, I finished my book before the war erupted. But the crisis was already brewing. And for from Ukrainian perspective, the war was going, actually, since 2014, when Putin annexed Crimea and uh, the Russians helped separatists in Donbass. So some kind of uh, strange war was already going on. So in my book, I had to respond to it. But today, when the big European war is raging, I think we cannot read about the past without having this new knowledge in question. Just as a caveat for students who think, oh, history is something that keeps being rewritten by every next generation, everyone according to new circumstances. A word of caution. I don't think that should be done. I don't think we should just go back to the libraries and rewrite all the past books. You know, it's impossible. Moreover, we have to be extremely careful in reappraising the past. But of course, we live where we live and we live in the times that we don't choose. So our mind keeps reacting to new challenges and new dangers. So with this final note, I urge you to read uh, history, but from your own perspective, with your own fresh experience. Thank you so much for this amazing talk. This absolutely aligns with the mission of a textbook, which is, you know, being careful about rebreathing history, essentially, about, you know, reading from one's own perspective, essentially. My pleasure. So, Ismail, what did you learn from this conversation? I think the most important thing that I learned was that there was a lesson to be taken from those monographs of the past, those books that were written by past historians, and that we should be careful about reappraising history. It's really critical to read from your own perspective and with your own fresh experiences. Thanks for sharing, Ismail. Our producer, Ismail Asafi, is a senior at Milton Academy. Vlad Zubak is a professor of international history at the London School of Economics and Political Science. You can follow him on Twitter at Vladislav Zubak1. That's V-L-A-D-I-S-L-A-V-Z-U-B-O-K-1. We've included a link to his work in our show notes. Be sure to follow our podcast on your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you decide to listen. That way, you'll never miss an episode. Next week, we're looking at the importance of the U.S. Navy. The struggle for naval supremacy was important because the Second World War did indeed involve two giant coalitions of force, not equally distributed. The Allies were always in superior material resources, but a long way off. So geography itself meant that sea power in the Second World War was going to be absolutely vital. Without control and command of the seas, you could not get, could not imagine, a victory over the Axis. If you like the show, tell your friends, students, professors, and maybe even drop a review or rate the show. We'd love to hear what you think. Our website is untextbook.org, and we're on social media at Untextbook. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton. Untextbook is produced in partnership with Pod People and Foos, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Shirley Wong, Hannah Pedersen, Danielle Roth, Shanice Tyndall, 
and Michael Aquino. Fernando Rain is our executive producer, and Cece Payne is our youth program coordinator and producer. Untextbook is a project of the History Collab, an organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet. Thanks for listening. <laughs>